two of the three companies that I was a part of where we were launching the commercial side of the company and shortly or really thereafter the product, the, the inaugural product, two of them did a really good job going out there and telling the story of the company, creating those relationships, creating trust on the front end. And that turned into what I thought was a very successful launch. Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello and welcome. As you probably know, many biotech companies spend their early years doing mostly R&D before they have an approved product. How does a company then launch that first product with no track record in the market, no established relationships? That's an important question and the topic for today. Frank Dolan has been there and done that, as they say, so let's jump right into it. My guest today is Frank Dolan. He's the CEO of Arsenal Advisors, back for his second visit. Frank, welcome back to Life Science Marketing Radio. Great to see you, Chris. Thanks for having me. And today we're going to talk about launching your first product. But before we do that, you have an event coming up. So why don't you tell people about that? Sure. On November 4th, 5th, and 6th, we're hosting what's called the Reimagined Biopharma Virtual Summit. And basically what it is, three days, a few hours each day, we're going to have a series of live sessions with a bunch of really exciting, very generous executives from biotech, pharma, medtech, meddevice, talking about what's happening in the world of life sciences, where it's going, and possibly what we can do about it. And the best part is that you can interact with these people the whole time. So every topic, every department is going to be represented. It's going to be a lot of fun. And the content from both the live sessions and more will be available right through the end of the year. So uh, if folks want to join, it's totally free. They go to reimaginebiopharma.com. Get yourself a ticket and join the conversation. All right. And I will put a link to that in the show notes to make it easy for people to get to. But as I said, we're going to talk about first product launches today. And you have had the experience of launching a first product at three different companies and sometimes with a different experience on, on those. So tell us a little bit about those because that's the core of what we're going to dig into. Yeah, so a lot of people have product launch experience and it's a lot of work to get uh, that product into the market, make it relevant, either create market share for the first time or take market share and grow the market. There's lots of challenges. And I know part of what we're talking about today is actually doing that when you're launching a company at the same time. And I've had a chance to do that a few times. And boy, I'll tell you what, there are some obvious things to do. I think there are some obvious ways to fail. But when I look back at, at those challenges and I also think about the future of the market, there are some really straightforward things that you absolutely have to get right. All right. So, uh, yeah, you got me curious. Should we start with the obvious ways to fail? <laughs> Just to get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah. So something that so I, I can we can talk about some of the career journey. I think that for this topic, for me, it started back in 1999 when 
Takeda Chemical of Japan, a company that at the time was bigger than Honda, decided that they were going to start their own pharmaceutical company in the United States. So here's a company that had a relationship with Abbott under a company called TAP, which had products in the market at the time, but they were going to do their own thing, launch their own product. We ended up launching a drug called Actos as the first product. And as one of the, the founding members of Takeda, which now is huge with thousands of employees in the US, never mind their global footprint, the providers we were going to call on had not heard of Takeda. Maybe they made a connection to TAP, but not really. And so I think one of the things that Takeda did really well, that when I think about organizations that I have observed launching their company, and when I say company, maybe you had a, a biotech, a pharmaceutical, a medtech company that existed with R&D for many years but they had yet to go to the marketplace that they would monetize and say, hey, by the way, this is who we are and this is what we have. Showing up to start that relationship with a customer when you finally have something to sell, I think is a way to, to possibly fail because there's no trust. And depending on how competitive that market space is, do customers have a reason to believe your message? Do they have a reason to believe that if they have a problem with the product that they can count on you? Can they count on your messaging to be truthful? Sure, everybody's regulated, but companies get in trouble all the time for not following the rules. Big and small companies get in trouble for not following the rules. So how can they count on you? And I think one way to maybe flip it and say it needs to be considered is, is your company building a relationship with a community that it's going to need in its corner in the future when it has a product before we have to talk about the transaction between your patients, if it's a provider and our product? Are there some other unique challenges that go along with the first product launch? Depending on what the area, the competitive landscape looks like for the product, an obvious way to fail is to walk into that, that sales and marketing conversation with your customer constituency and say, the science is amazing. You should want to use this device, drug, whatever. Put your patients on this. The science is amazing. What I've said to people a thousand different times, I still believe it today, is that science gets products approved, but marketing and sales execution gets products sold. And if we're trying to get products to the patients who need them, we need to be really good at how do we create a value proposition that's worth listening to and acting upon. So you can't just message, you can't just hope that the science impresses someone. For a lot of these things, I've had providers tell me some of this stuff, science is sometimes like art and the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We need to make sure that we package things that's a really compelling way where people feel safe and they want to go ahead and try that product out. Yeah, I don't think it's any different in uh, the instrumentation space, aside from the approval part, that whole thing, like we have the most amazing technology. I'm sure this goes across many industries. There are other reasons people will or will not be interested in, in whatever you have to sell. And you're only part of the way there with the science. So. Are there other concerns doctors raise when, when you show up with a new product like that? I, I do think that what we touched upon before is important 
to get a product successfully to the patients that need them, a lot of things need to happen. So the drug has got to be available. Okay. So in the early phases of a product launch of a biotech or a pharmaceutical product, which is the limitations of my experience, I can't speak to instrumentation or to med tech with great depth, but in the drug world, the pharmaceutical biotech world, early in the days of a launch, you are trying to get that product, as they say, in the channel. So if the product is essentially available at the local pharmacy, in the early days of a launch, sometimes that can be challenging. Not every pharmacy at your corner wants to stock every single product that's now on the market. And what that turns out to feel like in real life, if you're a patient or if you're a provider, is that the prescription goes to the patient. They go to the pharmacy and they say, okay, it'll be three days and we'll have this for you. And you can imagine, depending on the medical condition, the idea of waiting three days for that product to get shipped to the local pharmacy could in fact be problematic. Imagine having a, a cut and deciding, hey, I can't clean it for three days. Hopefully things will be okay. That's absurd. So making sure that the product is available is a dynamic that needs to be under consideration. How will you communicate the reality of the circumstances in some cases? Local pharmacies will need to order and then receive and then dispense the pharmaceutical product. What does that messaging sound like? What are the expectations you are delivering? Because there are a thousand examples of salespeople and sales organizations and products that have missed out on momentum because expectations fell short when it came to the physicians. You can't pretend everything's going to be perfect. You got to set good expectations. And as things change, as say the product grows, if it's a larger scale, larger market product and availability isn't a problem, are you making people aware of that? Are you framing it uh, appropriately? And I would say on the other side of it, never mind the, the distribution and delivery of the product, the other thing in the early days is around reimbursement. And what does that take? Most managed care plans don't necessarily give instant preferred access to that particular medication. So the out-of-pocket cost for a patient could be high, could be low. It could be something. Have you described that something and that expectation? Because I can tell you from experience of over a dozen product launches, three of them were launching the company and the drug. But after all of those launches, there's nothing worse than a healthcare provider who calls your biotech up and says, I tried to use your product. You made me look bad. Mrs. Smith called me up at the pharmacy and said, this was going to cost her $800. Why didn't I know that? I don't want my patients mad at me because I prescribed something that they had no idea was going to be so expensive. They thought it was going to be 20 bucks and move on. So uh, that's the other thing around being really clear and transparent around expectation setting. And of course, do you have the systems and the people to support that effort? I hadn't even thought about the pharmacy problem. So communicating, so I'm a pharmacy, there's a new drug available. I have no idea what the demand for that's gonna be. I don't even know how that bridge gets crossed. 
So you've mentioned now four audiences, the doctors, the patients, the payers, and the pharmacies who all have to know that something's about to happen and who's going to put their toe in the water first. So that's really the thing we're trying to solve here is to make sure that I don't want to say spread out the risk. I want to say eliminate that risk of people going whatever. And I hadn't even thought of doctors getting a call from a patient, which I'm sure does not help with the launch. So, No, and we're, let's face it. I think we're all impressed in a good way or a bad way with our early experiences with anything whether it's a website, whether it's a technology, a relationship. In those early days, we form a lot of opinions. And going back to uh, some of your previous points, Chris, if you're introducing the mission, the company, people like to root for for certain causes. I think if, if your customers understand you, your cause, your mission, what you're all about, we all make promises. But when we launch the product, it's our opportunity to deliver on that promise. Up until then, it's just been words, no observation. We want to be ready so people know what to observe and we hold the line on, on what we say we're all about. Based on your experience with those three launches of companies simultaneously with their first product, what makes the difference in success or lack thereof? How do you communicate to all those parties that you can be trusted and where you're going. I would say that people may be surprised how open these different parties are to having a conversation before there's a business transaction. Now I've talked to payers, for example, of all sorts in different work circumstances. And while everyone is busy, that's for sure. The reality is that when you're starting a relationship built on trust and awareness and, hey, this is what we do. These are what our objectives will be. I want to understand what you're up to and your objectives and, and listen. People will be open to it. That doesn't mean you get an appointment instantly, but I think organizations should try to do that with their different constituencies. So whether it's patients, payers, providers, or any of these other pharmacy distribution outlets, et cetera, there's a thousand of them, but have you thought all of that through? Have you made an attempt to build that relationship on the front end? We've seen very recently with some rare disease drugs that have, as it turns out, in the approval process, incorporated the voice of the patient. I have been to conferences uh, that focus on rare diseases, and I've literally heard from the stage patients or caregivers say, I have a certain disease. By the way, the company that has the product for my disease, the only one out there, the only time they wanted to hear my voice was when they had a product uh, that could go in me and that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. That patient didn't feel good about that relationship. Inherently on the patient side alone, patients are people and people in this particular case, they don't want to have a relationship with a drug company. They do not. You cannot convince me that someone wants to have a relationship with a drug company under the auspices of illness. Employment, different story. Yes. But people don't want to have something wrong. Right. And therefore, if they do have something wrong and they need, they have to have this relationship with the company. So I think we need to have a, a degree of responsibility as senior executives on are we incorporating the voice? Are we trying to build that relationship? Is this a foundation of trust and transparency? And do we start it you know, early and continue it often 
So it's a relationship that people want to have with you like down the road. You want to have raving fans in the best world possible. So what kinds of things can you do to build those relationships with people who are otherwise reluctant, but even in advance of having a therapy available for them, there are probably ways you can make their life better, even short of selling them something. This is one of those times where we shouldn't overcomplicate things. The most expensive and most prestigious ad agency isn't the answer. The most decorated and famous consulting firm isn't the answer. The most elaborate programs aren't the answer. I think the answers come in really two ways to be successful here. The first is to make a genuine effort and listen a lot as a basis of that relationship. So before you get the advice from the consulting firm or before you develop some sort of fancy program to disseminate information or to provide resources, before you build that, have you listened to the end user of that advice, of that strategy, of that program to understand like this may meet their needs. So starting that relationship with a dialogue and a lot of listening is actually a key to success that I think people who have tangible experience in this area will tell you that really is as simple and as straightforward, but like a lot of things, it's simple, not easy. That's a big deal. And I think the second element is really agility. And especially in this pandemic environment where if you are trying to create these relationships, let's say you have a company, you don't have a product yet, no one knows who you are, and you want to build a relationship with a patient community. There are many patient communities out there in all different disease states, not just rare diseases, where there's some sense of community, people who rely on each other for advice and how to approach this and what are the emerging therapies. It's a peer network. How do you make those connections through cold emails and Zoom calls right now? It's really hard, really hard, but you got to think it through, you got to find a way to, to have that outreach and to, and to make that connection. I think on the other side of the pandemic, we'll go back and realize the power of being able to have lunch with a customer, be able to go and walk a convention hall and, and network with others are things that we're going to need to take great advantage of because it's getting hard to do that in this environment, but the effort needs to be made and new techniques need to be used in this virtual environment. So put aside the pandemic for a minute. I'm just curious of how you have seen companies or individuals make those connections with patient groups. Cause even there, I imagine there's some hesitancy when they know where you're coming from and make that first step to where they don't think Oh, they, they're just looking to, for a way in. I don't know. What's that like? And then how do you get in there? Yeah. So I think about relationships in general. And as a father to three daughters, in meeting someone who might want to spend some time with one of my kids, I want to know their intentions. That's for sure. Before we feel too comfortable <laughs> sitting in the family room for five minutes. So it is inherently challenging and with great respect to an industry that I've spent my career in, the biopharma industry, especially amidst this political season, doesn't have the best reputation when it comes to like trust and will you do the right thing. 
During the pandemic, it certainly has uh, improved a bit since they're in charge of helping to create some therapies to either thwart or reverse the effects of COVID. But that said, it, it is difficult. Trying to approach uh, patient advocacy group leaders, whether it's the owner of a Facebook group and, and page or a more formal, empowered grassroots initiative that may even have an office in D.C., patient group to say, hey, by the way, we'd like to be involved in this community. How can we find ways to do that? And I will tell you, I've met so many people whose professional life's work is patient advocacy working for life science organizations. They're just really special people. Uh, they come from a, a great a place of grace, wanting to really help you know others. And I think that when you have those people approaching those organizations, again, it may not be an instant appointment. It may not be an instant welcome but communicating like we want to have a relationship with this community. How can we be involved in a very genuine way, not just write a, a, a check for their charity, like you really want to be involved. Uh, I think if you ask and you ask the right way with the right people, which is just coming from a place of high trust, interest and wanting to listen, you can get an awful long way. And we've seen plenty of examples of companies that have been able to do that successfully. Someone joins one of those communities and they know about the science, they're thinking about the science, but how do you dig in or have you seen a difference where people say, just tell me what your life is like as a patient? Are, are there things that they may not have thought of? Like, oh, this is another impact that I didn't realize. And it's not what our drug addresses, but this is a thing that we need to know about this community. So there are two things that come to mind. The first is, if you have a product on the market, there are a lot of regulations about what you can say. And so where you need to be very careful is would a third party, whether it's a patient, whether it's a provider, whether it's a regulator, do they think when you talk about that other corner of the disease state where your product doesn't have an effect, are you somehow making a claim? Do they think you're making a claim. So you gotta be really careful about that. And that brings me back to the other side, which is before the product is launched to be, start having this conversation with this community, because before you have a product, you can't pre-promote the product. The product's gonna be completely out of it. But when you have a product in the market, the product may not be in the conversation, but if someone thinks you're making a claim and they're like, well, hey, you've got that product. You're putting the two together, I think, somehow, some way, that's bad. But before then, you can have those conversations. And that's where the technique of having these conversations uh, that broaden the dialogue around the disease state are often referred to as like uh, market development or market shaping exercises. And there's nothing nefarious about that when you're bringing an innovative therapy to market where there, it's a first in class, there's nothing like it. The reality is that there's an opportunity to start changing the story of that disease. In the cardiovascular market, as an example, when it comes to medicine, early on, people thought about reducing total cholesterol because there were some medications that reduced total cholesterol. There were medications that came along that really brought triglycerides down. And then the statins came out and they went after LDL, the famous bad cholesterol. And then you talk about reducing bad cholesterol. And I use that as an example to say, 
in so many disease states, whether it's the patient or whether it's the healthcare provider, the story of the disease state often has an awful lot to do with the tools that are available. And you don't talk about treating the disease state or attacking the disease state or the problems of the disease state when you're trying to express it to someone else when there's no tool. Like, hey, here's the biggest problem in the world. And oh, by the way, there's no solution. But people are like, what solutions are there? Oh, okay, here are all the solutions. So that story of the disease state told via the tools that are available represents an opportunity for us to be able to have those types of conversations, widen it, think about it differently. And if you do that, and you do that at scale, the market may say, hey, you know what? There is a problem here. We haven't been able to attack it. Time goes on. Oh, hey, by the way, that's a difficult problem and your product solves it. I want to use that product. Now I'm ready to go. You don't have to start from chapter one. People are already on chapter seven. Got it. Yeah, that was informative. I learned something. I realized that once a drug is out, there's a whole new context for anything you ask about. Beforehand, I was just thinking, what's your day-to-day -day life like? Aside from disease state, like how does this disease make your life harder? Not because you feel bad or any symptom you can imagine, but what does it make it difficult for you to achieve that you would like to achieve? And those kinds of conversations, would that be inbounds? I think that patient journey piece is so important. That's the door you open to listen because there may be incredible insights that come forward from that you could really go ahead and, and leverage. That's, that's so powerful. It, it could completely, I will tell you as someone who has been a part of developing marketing campaigns, while we may have a view and a vision of how we will position our value proposition, when you end up learning more about the patient journey, it can literally change the entire nature of the campaign from the messaging, from the images, and then certainly from the resources that you may want to offer with the product when you are actually on market. But that patient journey cannot be underestimated. And it seems like a reasonable way to build that trust, to just ask those open-ended questions that aren't probing for what can we specifically fix in terms of symptoms or what are you looking for, but just what is your life like? Like any part of a good relationship would be like, I'm just listening. So all these activities pre-launch, how do we measure the long-term ROI? How do we get past the question of why are we spending money on this when we don't have anything coming in yet? Yeah, that's the hardest part of this whole thing is how do you measure the impact of these investments? Because like great leadership, you know, the, the best leaders are really good at the soft stuff, but the great leaders, they may be okay with producing spreadsheets and fancy graphs and process. But at the end of the day, are people charged up about uh, what they do and what they're doing it for and who they work with? It's those soft skills. And a lot of this pre-launch stuff, this market shaping stuff, it's a little nebulous. It's hard to figure out like, wow, are we having a real, a real impact? I think if you have a very intentional outreach campaign with these different customers that you know are going to be in your world on the front end, and you put valuable efforts forward where you're listening, you're delivering, you're helping to be a part of the story, you're helping to shape the story as it's appropriate 
for the solutions that you'll have on the other side of an approval, and you do that over a sustained period of time, I do believe you can, you can carefully look at through using like market research, for example, the readiness for folks to try the product, to want to use it, demand generation, trust level, and, and what have you. You can measure that. It's got to be sensitive, but you can measure those things when you get that market ready for you. So that's, again, really understanding the customer and investing in the research to understand where they sit today. The final piece of advice I would have on that is if you're looking for progression, just make sure you have a really strong baseline. And that's where I do feel like a lot of people in the biopharma space specifically, those are my people. They all want to say they were part of a product launch. Many of them want to say they were part of a startup and a, and a company launch too. It's very fashionable to have that on your resume. But I do think you develop a skill set and a palette for these things when you've done it a few times. And depending on how high the stakes are, you really need to be surrounded by people, employees, advisors that have done this before because just because you launched a product at an established big company with all the resources in the world is no indication that you'll be able to translate that into being really agile, thinking really wide, being innovative, not having heritage thinking everywhere to be able to pull off a, a launch successfully because that baseline is critical to establish if you're going to measure some impact down the road. If you master the art of it, by the time you're launching things and you're measuring something there, if you don't have the baseline, you can't check the Delta. So that would be my advice. Based on your experience, having done some of these upfront activities and seen them come out well on the other end, can you back calculate when you look back at it, was it a significant cost in the overall picture? It might've seemed like a lot at the beginning, but once you got done, you went, wow, that was money well spent. That's a great question. Two of the three companies that I was a part of where we were launching the commercial side of the company and shortly or really thereafter the product, the, the inaugural product, two of them did a really good job going out there and telling the story of the company, creating those relationships, creating trust on the front end. And that turned into what I thought was a very successful launch. In one particular case, there wasn't a big investment, a big appetite for that. And it was really to your previous question about like, how do you measure the, the impact? And I think that the leadership and perhaps the board of that company, and I'm not really sure if that's, is that really worthwhile? Do we really have to do that? There's like a natural place for this product in the market. We'll just walk into it and it'll be fine. And so I think that was a good lesson for, for everybody, for sure, because when you start if, if you make some mistakes or if you let people down, they perceive that they're let down in those early days, that really does form a, an impression and it limits your access. It limits their utilization of the drug as you, as you progress through the launch. So I do think that leveraging a lot of the channels right now, everyone's talking about digital. We can get incredible reach using the digital channels, social media, et cetera. And we find that you can do that high volume at scale, create quality content. That's where the big investment is, but distribution very, very cost efficient in a world where you can act in an interpersonal way, face to face, having a core team of folks that have identified key stakeholders in that marketplace, whether that's the payer market, whether that's the provider market, the patient market, et cetera, doing some outreach and trying to connect with those folks 
it's like how much do the people cost and then the travel cost and what have you and having these conversations. So I think compared to the valuations of a lot of our companies that are out there, uh, you've got a lot of, of biopharma companies, biotech companies that have massive market caps. They've generated no revenue to think about it. Like we could, if we think that this drug is going to do a hundred million dollars a year, could we spend a few million on the front end to prep the market with the right people, a few great resources, but a lot of effort to get the input from what they hear from these different stakeholders. That makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people would say, if I can ensure the success of a hundred million dollars of revenue by investing three to $5 million right now, would I do that versus taking my chances? I would say in general, I would make that bet. The second thing would be is that if I've got a biotech that has no revenue, but a four or five, $6 billion market cap, because people believe in its future, I sure as heck would make that investment. Awesome. Frank Dolan, this has been educational for me and I'm sure for everyone else. And now it's just a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. Hey, Chris, I appreciate all the work that you're doing and uh, helping to push this narrative. It's always a lot of fun being with you. I trust you found something you can take away from all of that. By the way, I'll be hosting a session at the Reimagined Biopharma event that Frank mentioned at the beginning of this episode. We'll be talking about community building and content, of course, so I hope to see you there. In the meantime, pick a couple of colleagues who might enjoy this podcast and share it with them, won't you? I will thank you in advance, and I'll be back in a couple weeks. Bye-bye.